Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 2, Episode Omega, the eighth and final episode of the season, where we discuss Flannery O'Connor's Everything That Rises Must Converge in full. Uh, We've discussed all the stories, and um, today we're just going to talk about uh, lasting thoughts about the collection, lasting thoughts about individual stories, um, you know, which, which one kind of sits as our, our favorite and which, you know, which one was the most challenging to, uh, you know, parse and, and make sense of, et cetera. Uh, but the place that, that uh, we decided to start was, uh, since we're both uh, teachers of English, we thought we'd start with the question, which of these stories are you most excited to, to consider teaching for the first time? So I, I've only taught everything that rises must converge the story, I think, once, uh, and Whitney's taught Greenleaf before, so those are our only pre- prior uh, experiences with this, with the stories from this collection. So, so Whitney, let's start with you. What what story is just one that you think this this year this this year in you know dual enrollment English uh, I'm going to teach blank. I'm going to teach several of these for sure. Um, some of them I'd never read before. We did this podcast, um, or I'd read so long ago that I didn't have a fresh enough impression of them to make a decision one way or the other about teaching them in the spring, especially because I was returning from maternity leave. And so I thought, let's stay on ground that I've covered before a bit. Right. Um, but I'm really looking forward to teaching revelation. I'm definitely going to teach that one. Um, I like Revelation so much because, on the one hand, I find the attitudes in it pretty relatable and convicting, and I think some of my students will, too. Um, the this judgment, the sizing other people up, um, and trying to figure out where they fit on a hierarchy that includes yourself and um, finding identity that way, I think they might find that relatable. High school kind of operates like that in its own ways. Yeah. Also, I love that that story doesn't have this deadly violence. It is violent, for sure, and what happens is disturbing in its own way, but it's it's not so starkly, shockingly deadly. I mean, I was thinking of giving my students something like a view of the woods, and I, I just think some of them would be too disturbed by the fact that this grandfather kills his granddaughter. It's just a lot, you know, for them to assimilate. Um, I also just think Revelation's so gorgeous in the end when she has her vision. What a beautiful picture of the kingdom of heaven. Um, What an unmissable um, purpose and meaning for that story. So I think it might be a good one to start with. Um, you can just simply have students read it and ask, what is her revelation? And I think they can get at it, whereas some of the stories are more opaque than that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to teaching that one particularly. So um, in, in the article, Everything That Rises Must Converge, O'Connor's Seven Story Cycle by Harbor Wynn from the journal Renaissance, um, one of the paragraphs starts, the significance of the placement of Revelation as the final story of the cycle is explained by the fact that it does not end at its violent climax like the six previous stories, but continues on to show the effects of Ruby's epiphany. And I think you bring up a great point about like choosing that one specifically to, t- to teach. Um, it helps students see that O'Connor has... Um, 
a more eternal vision. Like she has uh, the violent grace in all of her stories, but that story, like you said, ends in this true moment of beauty rather than this moment of like, like the fear of God, right? Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't end in the fear of God. I feel like it, it ends in the wonder of God. Yeah, it helps clarify that she's not celebrating violence. Um, that is a common misperception of her work. Um, in fact, in the, the book that we've both been reading called Giving the Devil His Due by Jessica Houghton Wilson about O'Connor and Dostoevsky, um, she um, gives an example of a critic who says, in O'Connor, grace is not effusion but aggression. It is God's violence responding to Satan's violence. Um, the operations of the divine and the demonic are disturbingly alike. And Wilson talks about this as a misunderstanding of O'Connor, that her God is just as violent as as Satan, that her God is almost portrayed as evil. I've seen that other places, people um, writing that O'Connor is of the devil's party without knowing it, like people say about John Milton yeah. and, and Paradise Lost. And it's a, it's a very serious and disturbing misunderstanding of her purposes. Um, but Wilson... Um, rebuts that and says, for O'Connor, Satan's violence responds to God's grace, and the devil is always accomplishing ends other than his own. That's actually quoting from Flannery O'Connor from her letters. Um, he is always accomplishing ends other than his own. In other words, God doesn't waste our suffering. Suffering happens because of choices that we make. It happens because this world is broken by sin. It happens because Satan is the ruler of this world for now. Um, suffering does happen. Um, but God does not waste it when we have any openness to him working in our lives. He redeems it and he uses it for good ends. And I've seen that so many times in my own life. Um, I like how the story of Revelation makes it perfectly clear that her suffering is going to lead her to an entirely transformed perspective that's going to redeem her life. Yeah. Yeah, when I think about... So I definitely am going to teach Revelation as well. Um, it's just such a... It's such a moving story, and, and I think it's just such a good antidote to, you know, the, the, the woke critical theory movement of today, which, you know, ultimately that's going to pass away and move, you know, society will move on from that zeitgeist. But right now that is the zeitgeist. And, um, one of the classes that I taught in the spring was called spirits in the material world. And I discussed, um, crime and punishment by Dostoevsky and a, a variety of music, art, films, uh, television shows that, um, that depict material things and spiritual things. Uh, and w- one of the great uh, things that I picked for that was because uh, I just picked such great things. Uh, but one of the one of the things that I that I thought had a, gr- a lot of merit, and I've actually used it in a couple of my uh, different courses, is the episode Moon Dust of um, of the Crown. And I think I mentioned it uh, with the Lame Shelter first. Yeah, the telescope mm-hmm. and all that. And um, and and you know just that idea of like. Now that I'm thinking through these stories, there's there's so many connections between um, the enduring chill is very similar to crime punishment. You know, you've got this person who thinks he's going to die and thinks he's you know he's kind of like on this like one path trajectory, um, 
and then you know God in His infinite wisdom uses everyone involved to to kind of um, just just alter His path. I mean, it's like Julian in that. I'm mean, not Julian. Um, uh, Asbury. Um, he. It's it's almost you know it's like he he doesn't choose to live it's like life chooses him, um, and I think that that's just because God is the author of life and and God just wasn't ready for him and so you know it just gave gave him undulant fever, <laughs> and so that you know to me um, the enduring chill I think is one that I would you know if I'm thinking about what would I use with that spirits in the material world I would use revelation enduring chill mm-hmm. uh, Parker's back. Um, maybe the lame children are first, although that one is, is really long. And so I, I would be hesitant to use that one. Now, now what I probably would do is I would use the collected stories and I would probably use like, um, the river and maybe the life you save, uh, maybe your own and maybe one or two more from the first collection and then use like three or four from this collection as well. The river's really good for that concept of spirits in the material world because you have this young boy who loses his life and chooses the spiritual over the material in this incredibly naive, innocent way in in which he he doesn't understand what he's doing or the implications of it or anything. But O'Connor is so insistent that there are just worse things than death. Right. You know, spiritual life... Um, transcends and, and trumps physical life any day. And yeah. so um, that story just illustrates that in a way that's uh, provoking and shocking. The death of a child, yeah. um, portraying the death of a child as not being the worst thing that could possibly happen, you know, is very provoking, I think, to a person who believes that this life is all we have and we have to make the most of it and squeeze every last drop out of it. Yeah. And so, but how much hope it gives you. You know, we mentioned the last time, what would you do if, if you, as a Christian, you knew that Christ were going to return the next day? What would yeah. you do with your time? And that idea of planting new life or starting new life. Right. Um, because, you know, there's so many mysteries to following God, but... One of those mysteries is if a child only lived a day after conception, what would that child's life be like in eternity? It may be a fully developed, fully realized life in eternity because God just brings things to fullness and fruition. And I think that that's a great point to, you know, to address to people that, that, um, you know, lose children due to miscarriage. Um, And even, you know, aborted children, it's like God has the beginning date of someone's life already, you know, he, he knows what children will be conceived tomorrow. I mean, that's, it's so amazing and and astounding to think about, but that's part of mystery. Like he knows it. We don't know it. You know, at at some point, like maybe six weeks down the road, the people that conceive their child tomorrow will realize, Oh, you know, (laughs) there's a baby in there. Um, and so just that concept of the, the, the um, regeneration and redemption of life uh, in eternity, especially for, you know, what we would call the most vulnerable, um, you know, the, the babies in the womb. Um, that's, that's just a, you know, it's a beautiful thought because it's a true thought. It's not just like a, 
oh, well, it would be nice if there was a God that cared about all life. It's like, no, there, there is the God that cares about all life. And, and, um, and that's, that, that's why our hope is so, so profound, is that we know that God is looking out for us, not in a way that's like this kind of, you know, your best life now, you're always going to be winning all the time. That's not, that's not how God looks out for us. He, he looks out for us like he does the sparrows, you know. They have enough to eat for the day. The lilies that bloom, you know, they're, they're more beautiful than Solomon and all his splendor. Like the king, the king of kings of the Old Testament, the richest man who ever lived, couldn't, couldn't compare in his, you know, his swag <laughs> to, a, to a lily. And, and, you know, lilies are beautiful, but so, so are other flowers. But, but that's, that's the degree, you know, Jesus says if, if God, you know, provides these things for these things that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more does he provide for you? And I was thinking yesterday about how much our daughter, Josephine, has changed just in the eight, eight months that she's been here in the world um, outside of my womb. And I was thinking about how difficult it will be to remember what she was like. Um, she's really cheerful and fun. And I was thinking about wanting to remember what her little baby voice sounds like, you know, going forward. And, of course, we live in the age of video, so to some extent you can. But... Then I thought, you know, I wonder, it's possible, I think, in eternity that um, all those different stages and, and parts of that person are all sort of cohering in yeah. who they are in eternity. And um, you may be able to sort of appreciate all those different stages yeah. and, and phases and parts because it's almost like you become a new person when you transform right. from being an, a newborn to an infant to a toddler. It feels like it, you're a different person in those right. stages, and somehow your being encompasses all of those things. When, when you're not in time anymore, there's so many beautiful mysteries that go along with stepping outside of time and into eternity that we'll get to discover. It's interesting that you say that, because I was just thinking about the idea of like the seed generating all the way to the flower and the fruit. And, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, this idea that, like, if you have the Holy Spirit, you will have these signs. And, you know, the point of the fruit of a tree or a flower or whatever is to create more trees and more flowers and more more life. And, um, and I think that that's just it is, like, in some ways, the fruit of our spirits will, will live on, you know, like in Josephine or whoever, you know. Um, but in some ways, I think that the fruit of our spirits will be, will, will be um, permanent in, in eternity and in heaven. And so that idea of, you know, what, what, are, we, what are we demonstrating on earth, that, that is what will be remembered by on earth. And, and you know, I, I think it contributes to our identity in eternity. And, of course... Our identity in eternity has to start with Jesus giving us his place. Like, if we don't get Jesus his place, we, we can't earn Jesus his place otherwise. And so, you know, unless you let Jesus die for your sins and, and just claim, claim it and say, you know, my sins put Jesus on the cross, well, you, you're not at poverty of spirit yet. You're at, like, lower middle class of spirit. And... You know, the, the class system of these stories, especially Revelation, 
uh, it's just so profound um, that we have such an analogy to what richness or, or, or like middle classness or, or you know lower middle classness or, or poverty of spirit are. Um, the people that are rich in spirit are the prideful, you know, like the rich young ruler who comes and is like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, just sell everything you have and follow me. And he walks away sad. And, and just think about how he could have traded everything that had material value for something that had eternal spiritual value. But he decided that the things that had material value were the things that were going to define him. So we never get his name, you know. And I just think about the, you know, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, it's not a parable. It's just, I'm just going to call it the story because it's really, to me, that Jesus is telling about someone being in heaven. If, if anyone knows who's in heaven, it's Jesus. And so he's like, you know, Lazarus is in heaven and, and the rich man is in hell and he's trying to get Abraham to send Lazarus down to hell mm-hmm. to, to cool his tongue because it's, it's just unending agony in hell. And he's like, my brothers are still alive. Please send him to them. And, and like, He does have a name, which is unusual in the stories Jesus tells, that he has a name, Lazarus. I mean, right, often right. the stories that just seem clearly like parables just have a designation or something, yeah. not a name. So you're right. It, does, it feels different. And so um, the reason I say, you know, to me, I, I think the parables are real stories that Jesus knew because he, I think he just had a perfect understanding of, of history. Like he, he had the redeemed, like what we would call a pre-fallen mind. Like he has Adam and Eve pre-sin level perfection and, and, and God's, you know, omniscience. But, but the point being, I think the, the parables that he uses are real stories and that they're not just things he made up. Like it doesn't seem like it's an effective tool to just make up a story and be like, well, let's, uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, a farmer and he's going to leave this land to someone, you know, it's like, to me, just, just like we see illustrations in sermons now, you know, pastors don't just make stories up. They, they take stories from life and they take, sometimes they'll take stories from like literature or fiction, but those are still, pre-existing stories they're not like well let's pretend that there's an author named Dostoevsky and let's pretend that he might have written a novel about killing someone with an axe well, I think of it more like when you're listening to a sermon and a pastor will say you know how when people and he gives an example that it's just something we've all seen yeah yeah and experienced it's not about one he doesn't say you know how this one guy or my friend this this and that it's just right um they're just ways people behave that are we've all seen in humanity. And a yeah. lot of the parables that Jesus tells fit that dynamic right. to me. Um, you know how when you lose one coin and you search the whole house trying to find you know, things like that. Um, and then others feel more like fully like fleshed out ser- stories. Yeah. More like a real story. Than like maybe he knew yeah. that that happened right. and because he knows has this insight into yeah. all these things that have ever happened, and he just gives an example from a real thing that happened. And I, I could be, I could be wrong, you know. And I could be, and that's the thing is, like, I'm humble enough to to say I could be wrong. Some people are just so certain that they're like, "There's no way I'm wrong." Um, but 
it's possible, and, and really it's possible that Jesus heard these stories and then incorporated them into his teaching, not knowing whether they were true or not. Although, I mean, yet again, like, I think he would be able to tell the difference between a made-up story and, like, a historical story. So um, all that to say, the concept of being named, you know, you look at all the characters that are named in these stories and the ones that aren't. And sometimes the ones that aren't named are the ones who seem to, to uh, experience the grace. Like, I would say Julian's mother is the one that experiences the grace. Julian is the one that experiences... Um, the the separation like he he experiences God's grace uh not on the deliverance end but on the like I don't want to say judgment end but like does that make sense like he's his mother is getting delivered from the from life you know from the from the trials and and challenges of life in in her death well since he's left with a decision at the end of the story it because it says that um he is delaying his entry into the world of guilt and sorrow, which, of course, that doesn't sound like redemption. Right. It sounds like <laughs> guilt and sorrow. But feeling guilt and sorrow is more likely to lead you to repentance True. and then redemption than feeling pride and complacency, which is what he had felt before. And I think that's, you know, that goes hand in hand with what, what does it look like to be poor in spirit? Well, if your mom just died because you were kind of willing her to get into a confrontation with these African-Americans and then she gets hit in the head with a purse full of rocks or metaphorical rocks, mm-hmm. then you have, you can't be like, oh, it was her fault. Like, no, you're the one, you know, he has to realize he was the one, just like Jesus says, if, if, if you call someone a fool, you're in danger of hell. And that's, it's like he is judging his mom to that level of like, he thinks his mom is the one that's that's denying the dignity, like any dignity whatsoever, to African Americans. And I do think he is on the right track that his mom doesn't have a perfect understanding of of the dignity of mm-hmm. people of other races. Like I I think that's obvious to anyone that mm-hmm. reads it. But he takes that as an excuse to think of her as having no dignity exactly. and treat her as if she has none. And that's, I think that's just where we are in society right now is, is we're trying to find someone who's worse at noticing other people's dignity than we are and then judge them. And that's what O'Connor meant, I think, when she said that tolerance and, and those kind of insipid virtues that we try to make virtues of in the modern world can actually lead to violence um, because if you get this sort of abstract love for mankind and make that... It's not love for your actual neighbor or the people that you live in the yeah. house with, but just love for mankind, the abstract. Um, and you make that your God, you end up being very cruel and ruthless to people who don't share that same yeah. sense of abstract love for mankind that you have. Yeah. Um, particularly, we need power from the Holy Spirit to be good to the people who are with us day in and day out, stressing us out. Yeah. Um, I don't think it requires that kind of power to just think thoughts of goodwill about humankind in general, especially when you're not out and about among them. I mean, think about how much harder it is to think about mankind as being, 
you know, good and positive and loving and all these wonderful things when you're on a subway in a big city, for yes. example. Or, you know, <laughs> you're just somewhere where you have to deal with a lot of people. People start getting on your nerves and stressing you out instead of you feeling overflowing feelings of love for them. And I think O'Connor might say, well, that's why you don't rely on your feelings to your feelings of love coming and going to determine who you're going to be, how you're going to behave, what, yeah. you know, what your priorities in life are going to be. Yeah. And, and like I was saying, you know, right now the, the zeitgeist is find someone who is not as good at recognizing other people's dignity and judge them. But, you know, from a Christian response, it should be find someone who's not as good at recognizing other people's dignity as you are and help them, you know, teach them, bear with them, uh, abide with them. Don't don't cancel them. I mean, the worst thing you can do to someone is say you're beyond the reach of God's grace because th- you're just lying to them and and you're not understanding God's grace. I mean, that's you know, w- when Paul says he's the chief of sinners, he's not exaggerating. He's saying like, I'm not se- you know I'm not second rate. I'm not I'm not like a junior sinner. I I'm a I I am someone guilty of putting Christ on the cross. And when you know that is true about yourself, then you start the cycle of the Beatitudes and being poor of spirit, mourning, you know, being, uh, you know, being meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, um, um, being pure of heart, being a peacemaker. And, And it's interesting that you know, how many peacemakers are there in any of these stories? Not many. I mean, it's it's hard to find even one because I just think Flannery O'Connor's view of people, the the kinds of people that she's writing the stories about. Like, I would say Bevel, the the reverend in The River, he's someone who's, who's, you know, really like, at the end of, of the journey of faith. Like, he has he matured in the faith. Even though he's supposed to be pretty young, he seems to really be governed by the truth, be submissive to God, be, be interested in people's true spiritual changes. But we don't have any character like that. Like, I can't think of a single character that's bevel-level <laughs> faith in, in any of these stories. I mean, would you say there's anybody... I'm not thinking of anyone off the top of my head. And there are several ways as a Christian writer that you can approach characterization. And one of them is to show the effects of different types of brokenness and idolatry in a person's life. And so as a teacher, sometimes that's what we're we're doing. You know, I teach at a Christian school. And so we're talking through, okay, this person has prioritized this and made this the most important thing. What is it? What are the consequences of that? And you actually see that even writers who aren't Christians, just who they're trying to write in a genuine way, an accurate way in terms of human nature, they show the devastating consequences of those different forms of idolatry. I think that's what Flannery O'Connor is doing in this collection, mostly. She's showing characters who want power, they want self-respect, they want autonomy, um... And just the aftermath of that, what it does to themselves and other people. There's another way you can approach characterization as a Christian writer, which is to write about people who are seeking virtue. True. And I think you can 
that can go too far sometimes because you can it can become a self righteous show, um, or it can make people feel as if they need to be legalistic or live up to that. Right, right. But I do think that's important too. Showing people just trying to be godly yeah. and struggling through it in a real way. Um, I think of Marilyn Robinson's books. I think they tend to do that well, like Gilead. I just read The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis, and it was had characters who were by no means perfect. They were certainly, they could be petty, they could be selfish, but when it came down to it, they sacrificed for other people. They cared for others. They were willing to submit to the authority of the divine when they spotted it. Um, people seeking virtue. Yeah, I, I was thinking about. It. I think Father Finn in um, Oh yeah, and the Inner and Chill is probably the closest thing to Bevel. Like you have this backwoods, you know, fundamentalist Christian. Like I don't even know what denomination they are because he's preaching at a river, but. In the first story collection, you've got that, and then in the second story collection, you've got this Catholic priest. And so I think Flannery O'Connor does a great job of dignifying the faith of <laughs> of, <laughs> of the Protestants and dignifying the faith of her own, you know, Catholics. Um, and I think that that's something, I mean, just, you know, we go to a Baptist church, and, you know, there's sometimes where it feels like there's a lot of judgment, uh, you know, laying upon the Catholic Church or the Catholic teachings. And, you know, I I do think that if you come to it at a place of humility, it is possible to point out the speck in the eye of, you know, another denomination. But it's like, let's get all the logs out of our eyes first, you know. And and I think it's just so easy to stand up and, and criticize others instead of stand up and confess your own sins. And um, Flannery O'Connor was very, I feel like she was very confessional, especially in her letters, um, but even to, the, you know, to some extent in her stories. Like, everything that Whitney was saying about, like, these stories all have to do with this, like, like, someone, like, realizing the end result of their idol, Right? I think that comes out of that story, Good Country People. Because really, out of all the other stories in the first collection, that's the one that seems like it would fit the most. Like, if, if you had to take one from that collection, that one would fit the most in this collection. Except this collection doesn't have the rural element to the degree that, that the whole first collection feels like it's happening in pre-interstate Georgia. Because I think the interstates are, are happening as she's writing that in the 50s. And it just feels like, I mean, like, where, do the, where does uh, Lucy Nell Crater live? Like, someplace where you can see a sunset every night that looks just truly majestic. And it seems like it's, like, out... Like, I, I take it as, like, it's somewhere in, like, Conyers or something. I always mm-hmm. assume that, like these stories that are about the city are about Atlanta. And I mean, she does have some that are you know, explicitly about Atlanta, but there's some that are, that are more clearly like, okay, Milledgeville is the quote unquote city. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to say. And so good country people to me has this, 
to me, Joy Holga would fit in the collection. I don't know if Manly Pointer would. The thing about that story is, so she does have her idol exposed very clearly. It talks about how her leg or wooden leg is sacred to her, and it becomes pretty clear through the story that her philosophical beliefs and just her own intelligence really are very sacred to her as well and they all get violated desecrated Mm -hmm. in different ways in the story what feels different to me about that story is that it's not as explicitly um christian to say simply it's not it's exposing her idols without leaving us with a strong sense of what could replace them great point i think it's a it's a portrait of of atheism in in theory versus practice. Yeah. Um, but like you said, it doesn't give an antidote to that. Um, and I think that that's interesting. That that's that's kind of where she was in her writing and her faith. Um, I just I, I think that that's in that's indicative of a lot of Christian writers mm-hmm. uh, and myself included. Like I, as a songwriter, as a you know aspiring writer of fiction. Um, I, I just, I find it increasingly easier to be forthright about my faith in my creative work in a way that I couldn't be even five years ago, let alone 10 or 15 years ago. I think there's just something about, um, just, just like the picture at the end of Revelation uh, or toward the very end about even their virtues are being burned away. I think God has to refine you and 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 um, sanctify you from your sanctimoniousness, right? Like from your self righteousness, um, and so I think that that's that that's just part that just goes uh, part and parcel with with the Christian journey is you get increasingly uh, defined by your eternal identity. And, and decreasingly defined by your temporal identity um, to the point where, like, I used to be terrified of losing a job because I've lost a couple jobs, and, and it, it was very difficult to, to, to rebound from those. But um, as I increasingly gave God the, 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 the agency to, to lead me in life, I really don't worry now like if I were to lose my job or like if I were to lose the ability to do my job because I couldn't speak or I couldn't see, like there are a couple senses <laughs> that, that are pretty uh, essential for teaching, you know, couldn't hear. Um, my life could change in an instant and I would not be able to do the field of work that I think I'm going to you know do the rest of my life. And um, Flannery O'Connor you know, I think when she was young, she thought she was going to be this, you know, Southern expatriate writer, like living in New York City and kind of like, you know, uh, looking askance at people and just being like, what the heck is wrong with you? You know, and as she matured and as she had to go back to Milledgeville, I think she got more compassion for the lost, but she delivered the... Uh, you know, she, she delivered the truth to them in equally brutal ways. But I think that's... You have to really get shaken to get, uh, to quote, get right with God, um, which is on the cover of 
um, that uh, Flannery Connors aesthetic vision or whatever that, that, that book is called. I left it at home. But um, that's something that Flannery Connors, she's driving around and, you know, being driven around Millersville and, and, and central Georgia and seeing these signs on trees and, and on billboards and, and different things and just seeing the urgency that people have to get to, to, to get you to think about your spiritual identity. And I, I think she turns that urgency into these stories in a way, like we're saying, that she didn't in the first collection. I don't know if it has to do with getting older. That sounds condescending to me because I think not everyone ages the same way, and some young yeah. people are very Any, yeah. very zealous and Anything mature. Anything can be revealed to anyone yeah. at any age. Yeah. But at least maybe in our cases, getting older has done this to us to some degree because I, I was thinking about you with your artistic works and uh, me with my teaching or just learning intellectual work I guess we I think we both probably over the years have become more explicit and bold I mean I do feel slowly my teaching has become more and more explicitly Christian more and more explicitly making claims for absolute truths and not feeling as if that compromises my intellectual persona in any way. Um, To me, it feels as if when we were young, we were so influenced by thinkers and creators who weren't believers in Christ. And those people seemed like the models we should follow if we wanted to be taken seriously and we did want to be taken seriously. And so you learn to conform or to um, leave out really the most essential thing in your life from your endeavors to a degree. And then yeah. as you, I don't know, as we proceeded through life, that just started to seem inauthentic and cowardly and unnecessary increasingly. Yeah, yeah when I think about, like, who is Flannery O'Connor trying to be like in her in you know in, in the ending of her her life on Earth? I say Jesus. I mean, I, I I don't think she's trying to be like any writer. I think I mean, <laughs> in a way, she's trying to be like Flannery O'Connor. But uh, some writers do feel that sense of like I've got to live up to my the 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 reputation I've set for myself or the image that I've set for myself. Like like Hemingway is a great example. I think that he couldn't be Ernest Hemingway anymore. Um, and, and I mean, sadly, like, his ending is very similar to Robin Williams's ending. Like, both of them commit suicide, and both of them had this kind of, like, like point where they, they, they just couldn't be themselves anymore. Like, mm-hmm. Hemingway almost died in this plane crash and kind of was never the same after. Um, and there's a, there's a video of him reading uh, in an interview from cue cards and you can tell they're cue cards because he says period like he just says one of the punctuation marks and it looks funny and it it's kind of silly like it it amused me when I saw it but when someone explained I think it was on one of the YouTube comments it was like this is right after his plane crash where he almost died I was like oh okay this here's this guy that's been this like incredibly charismatic charming you know um I mean, he was probably the most famous person in the world in the 1930s. Like, that's pretty big. You know, certainly one of the most famous. Way more famous than someone like Faulkner or or even Flannery O'Connor. You know, it's like Hemingway was this this larger-than-life figure until, until he couldn't be. And 
you know, that that's one of the things that can sink us into depression is is losing the ability to be ourselves. You well, know. I think that is so essential to me. If I think this one thing about me is so essential to me, and then that thing starts to slip away. Yeah. Um, I think about that a lot. I think it's important to think about that a lot, actually. Um, what if I were to lose my voice and couldn't no longer speak? Yeah. What if I were to lose my ability to read because something happened to my mind, you know, whatever it is, what if my face were to get disfigured? Um, These sound macabre, but these thought experiments help us to find our idols. True. Because how how do I feel? Which of those feel gut-wrenching and difficult if I really stop and think through the implications of it? Um, And it helps you to try to put them in the proper places in your life and realize that, you know, my life would still have value to God and to others. It certainly still could have value as long as I didn't despair and give up if I lost any particular aspect of my identity. And, and ultimately, wouldn't you say that that's what every single one of the stories in this collection is about? It's about losing an aspect of your identity in order to save your identity. And realize that your identity is not in something so fragile and petty as how smart you are, how much more socially progressive you are than someone else or yeah. something like that. You have a, a deep identity that was woven into you before your birth. Yeah. Um, looking at our child and seeing how much of her personality seems to have just been there from the time she was in the womb, we could already see little hints of it and as it emerges, it's not because we are raising her or nurturing her a particular way. I think it's just it's just in there. It's just her. Yeah. And you see that with siblings being so different from one another, being raised in the same home. And our identity is deeply woven into us, our, yeah. our temperament and our potential and our abilities. And it's not fragile. And we don't have to accomplish and accomplish and accomplish in order to prove that we have it. Yeah. When I think about that... You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about this concept of, like, what happens when you can't be Flannery O'Connor anymore, you know? And, and of course, Flannery O'Connor is a good example of, like, sh- she, she mainly existed in people's minds. Like, she existed in Milledgeville. She was in the hospital, you know, off and on for about 13 years. And, you know, other than her mom... And the people that she was related to in Milledgeville, she probably didn't see that many people. Now, she did get to go on some speaking tours um, when her lupus was under control. But when you think about it, like, she existed mainly in in letters to people and in her, obviously, her writing, um, her published writing, and maybe the occasional, like, you know, radio interview or something like that that they might they might get you know it's like that's about it and and um and you know I think about you know I, I just think about like Hemingway and and you know Robin Williams and these people that 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 uh Virginia Woolf's another good example like make it to their 60s and then commit suicide it's just such a hard thing to see someone like choose to go out at that stage in life because it's like they clearly have survived depressions before, you know. Um, they've survived many seasons of depression in some cases. And I think it's just, 
it's particularly shocking and, and heartbreaking to see someone die that's that's made it to that to the end of the tunnel, you know, with with depression. Um, and you know, I think about Robin Williams. Like fi- I found out, you know, he had Parkinson's disease, and and um, I think you know, I mean, I can't speak for him s- specifically, but it's like I think when you have Robin Williams level energy and Robin Williams level um, just just uh, effect on people to have to let go of that and still be Robin Williams. You know, it's like Muhammad Ali having Parkinson's disease. Like, he was the greatest boxer of a generation, and then he was just someone that had Parkinson's disease, no different than any other person that had Parkinson's disease. You know, it it just affects the body similarly, regardless of of the the person. And so... But you think of how much a parent loves an infant and the mm-hmm. infant hasn't proven anything in this world yet True. hasn't become the greatest anything True. hasn't charmed or impressed anybody they're just cherished for who they are um and that's how we all are to god yeah you know it's it just to think that muhammad ali and robin williams is incredibly gifted as they are they're yeah. not more cherished or less cherished by God. True. They're his children. They're yeah. his creations the same way the rest of us are. Yeah. And, and you know, just thinking about, like, when someone has a great gift of talent, if, if they're famous for it, like, you know, Muhammad Ali is famous for being a boxer. I'm sure that there's, you know, a boxer from every generation that could have whooped him, but you never heard about that person because they never got to fight at that level it's not because they didn't have the talent or the drive or the resilience it's just that they didn't get they didn't get the kind of shots that he did uh or or robin williams now i I don't think there are many people on earth that have ever had as much uh energy and just Mm -hmm. a humorous ability as as robin williams um but you know that's just it is like when you see someone lose that much talent it's it's so disheartening because you're like, oh, I wish they could have stayed that way forever. But it's like no one stays, you know, it's like Cindy Crawford's like 50 now, you know, it's like she was the most beautiful woman in the world. And I'm sure she's still beautiful, but it's like, yeah, but how does she compare to, you know, X or Y or Z? And, and that's the thing is like when we, when we define ourselves by earthly identities, we can always, pale in comparison to our former selves or, or pale in comparison to what we think we could be eventually. And Flannery O'Connor really, I think she, she divorced herself from that. She really got to the point where she was like, I'm going to be my eternal identity and just, just suffer through the lupus for as long as it takes. And then when God calls me home, that, that, you know, I finished my, my race, my race of faith. And, you know, one of the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Flannery O'Connor this summer is just because I think it's so important for people to have other touchstones of faith to learn from. Now, I do think it's foolish to just try and carbon copy someone's faith because that doesn't, that's gonna, it's not going to fit you perfectly. You know, even, Whitney and I, as, as close as our lives are together, and we both teach English, you know, we, we have to have our own individual faith. Now, we obviously interact 
a ton. And so we're going to sharpen each other like iron sharpens iron. But that doesn't mean we're going to be the same blade. You know, it's not going to be identical blades. Um, and that's the, th- you know, that's the thing about Flannery O'Connor is I think, I think she offers people, especially in the South, uh, a very unique blade upon which to sharpen. And uh, reading these stories it is just so convicting in, in so many different ways because you, you either start judging a character or you feel like that tra- character would judge you. And by the end of the story, there's been a, a, a tremendous shift. And I don't know, it, it just, it, it's, it's humbling to read, but it's also exhorting to read, if that makes sense. And those things do make perfect sense together. Um, humble yourself and you will be exalted. Um, that all these paradoxes and ironies are so important in scripture and they're so important in Flannery O'Connor's stories as well. Yeah. Um, like the enduring chill, that irony that you were just mentioning that um, he was trying to spite his mother by drinking that unpasteurized milk and thought that he was connecting rebelliously with the workers and thought that he really was doing something groundbreaking by sharing a cup with these with black men. He, all of his intentions and um, and motives end up getting upended and leading him to illness, but also leading him to humility and leading him to having to do the last thing he ever wanted to do, which is go live with his mother. And it yeah. seems like it's all God's plan all along, but it's an example of how God can sometimes use our sinful actions as ways of finally breaking us and humbling us. Um, and you see that in her stories a lot that people's sin will actually eventually open them up to God, um, in unexpected ways, um, because God will use it and not just like he won't waste our suffering. He won't waste our sin. I actually read, um, O'Connor had written that she thinks that sometimes God will, as she wrote, I think sin occasionally brings one closer to God. That sounds kind of heretical, but I think sin can shock us into repentance sometimes, yeah. or God can let us face the natural consequences of our right. sins and then we'll realize that there are sins and that we need to repent. Um, but I love the way she uses that, that paradox and irony in her stories. So I've been thinking about the, the title, The Lame Shall Enter First, and, you know, Jesus says many who are last will be first and the first shall be last. Um, in uh, Matthew chapter 20, this is uh, in, in the aftermath of James and John's mother going and basically asking Jesus, like, can my son sit on right and left of you in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking. Um, but it says, in the aftermath, it says, When the ter- ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be f- whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And so I thought about that. Uh, what if that was the title, the, the slaves shall enter first instead mm-hmm. of the lame shall enter first? Um, and, and I do think to some degree that is what Jesus is saying. Yeah. He's saying the slaves will enter before the plantation owners, before the middle class, before the white trash, before anyone that, that 
takes away the dignity of someone who's African American in the South, you know, in, in from from the Civil War on, it, it is really just putting themselves at the back of the line, and you know th- this. Um, you know, this story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, is coming from the, the statement from, this is from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, from uh, an article that he wrote called The Omega Point, <laughs> The Omega Episode. It says, remain true to yourself, but move ever upward toward greater consciousness and greater love. At the summit, you will find yourselves united with all those who, from every direction, have made the same ascent. For everything that rises must converge. And so, you know, that that concept, all of those from every direction who have made the same ascent, that's what heaven is going to be, that it's going to be full of people that don't look like me, people that, that don't have the same education that I have or the same health that I have on earth, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so just... Is that, you know, is that a place I want to be? Yes. Like, (laughs) I desperately want to be in a place where everyone has in common faith in Jesus. And that idea of lameness, the lame shall enter first. I love that because it brings to mind a picture of someone really struggling and hobbling to enter, you know, to get there. And that a real Christian community should be a kind of community where you're cheered on and, and helped along and whatever ways we're all, you know, hobbled and weak in some way or another, that we, we help each other along across that finish line, that we cheer each other on, that we make room for the people who might lag behind otherwise. We bring each other along. There's so much imagery like that in the New Testament letters about the church and um, that you're all one body, so we, we all go together. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the lame typically would be the ones lagging behind and, at the end of the line because they could move as quickly, yeah. right? But instead they get to, to go first. It also gives me that sense of what Christian community and what eternal life should and will be like. Yeah. And, you know, I think about, you know, there's lameness physically and there's also lameness, you know, uh, intellectually, mm-hmm. you know, this idea of, like, uh, people that might have, like, a mental slowness, you know, that, that they would be going in before someone that has, you know, Rufus Johnson's IQ. Um, But that, you know, it's interesting to think about that because it's like he's very quick intellectually and he's very slow physically. And that's kind of like Flannery O'Connor. But but Flannery O'Connor doesn't use that intellect out of pride in these stories. I I think she had burned away the pride by the time she's writing these stories. And I do think it's important to realize that God's not condemning us for our strengths. Like, he's built strengths within us. Yeah. Strong intellect, strong bodies, different things. Um, we're not condemned for the things that are born in us yeah. or asked not to use them. Yeah. Um, but we are asked, I like that image of casting our crowns before the feet of God. Yeah. Um, this idea that any glory that I've, gain from the strengths that God gave me, I need to put that crown down and say, you know what? God gave me that strength. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about the the stories that won the O. Henry Prize, which, you know, any prize that you win, no matter how uh, prestigious, 
is the opinion of the people that voted. And that's it. They didn't ask me, you know. <laughs> if they had, they might have gotten a different answer. Um, but, but that's just it is that I had to learn that many, many times. And uh, I've gotten to the point now with my music where if somebody doesn't like it, oh well, you know, like maybe they might like it later, you know, (laughs) and um, I like it. (laughs) That's why I keep writing it. It's like I, I love music, and so I want to add things to the, you know, canon of music on earth that are great if I can. If I can't, then I'm just not going to add it. You know, I'm not going to put out something that's terrible and be like, this is good enough. Um, And that's what Flannery O'Connor did really exceedingly well with these stories is she got Greenleaf published first. It won the O. Henry Henry Short Story of the Year Award. She got Everything That Rises Must Converge and uh, published in 1961, I believe it was. And it won... The Henry Award for 1963 because maybe it was like published right right after the judging uh, window, and then after she well she knew it before she died but it, you know it was it was officially uh, awarded after she died Revelation won so three out of the nine stories in the collection were the best story of the year that you know that has hit me in a different way here at the at the Omega point <laughs> than it than it would have before we you know as we we're starting the, the podcast because to think I mean yeah it's just the opinions of the judges but that that here this this Christian author who's writing these really weird stories that probably make almost no sense to someone that doesn't have faith and people that have faith are like struggling to make sense of them hence us um, that, that here's this person who didn't rest on her laurels. You know, she could have said, like, I wrote A Good Man's Hard to Find. I don't need to write anything else. You know, Harper Lee wrote To Kill Mockingbird and Bless Her Heart. She never wrote another thing except Go, Go Set a Watchman, which was, which was already written before To Kill a Mockingbird and only published when she got so senile that her literary estate people basically took advantage of her and, and got it published. And I kind of think of it as like almost like a posthumous uh, work that was published pre-posthumously. <laughs> and so, you know, I think about Flannery O'Connor with, with these stories and, and, and just what vision she had. I read that article about the, the short story cycle, and it was talking all about how Revelation just brings together so many of the things like for example three of the stories are from the uh, the older person's point of view three of the stories are from the younger person's point of view and the revelation has a combination of uh, ruby turpin and mary grace yes mary grace um and and it just has i mean there are too many points to to make them all uh but if you want to read that article i I can't remember i'm sure i found it on galileo so you can find it too or if you can't find it just ask me um but but just thinking about like Flannery O'Connor had a had a vision for this short story collection that was a unity. Like she wanted she wanted you to be able to read uh, Greenleaf and Comforts of Home and View of the Woods and Everything that Rises Must Converge and, and The Enduring Chill and um, uh, The Lamb Shall Enter First and Revelation. Hope hope that was seven. Um, 
read all of them and, and get something from them that's almost akin to reading a novel. Yeah, it's helpful to think of that analogy of an, uh, an album and the songs on an album being point. meant to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we read things out of context too often, I think, in the Internet age. And we listen to songs out of context and we, you know, read articles or even short stories just here and there scattered. Um, these stories are anthologized in books. And it's not that they don't stand alone. They do stand alone well, but... They have so much interplay. It yeah. is more helpful to think of them as a cycle. One of my students, actually, we had read maybe um, four or five stories by O'Connor, and then they read another story on their own and, and did some analysis. And one of my students said something like, wow, these are getting so repetitive. I feel like I know what's going to happen before I even read it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of tired of reading them. And the stories we'd read did not follow exactly the same pattern, but I could see what she meant. I wasn't offended by that comment. But I do believe that seeing the patterns in the preoccupations that she has are helpful at seeing them as meditations on a similar idea and a similar cultural environment. But seeing the... It's almost like seeing the unique dignity in each person, seeing the unique dignity in each story. Because yeah. when you meet people as you move through life, people have a lot of similarities. It's very easy to do what uh, Ruby is doing in Revelation and group people into categories based on superficial similarities. Oh, that's a Visco girl. You know, <laughs> that's kind of a slightly dated reference. I don't know that people are being visco girls anymore once but, a visco girl always a visco girl but you know what i mean where you put someone in a category and you think oh yeah i, I get you enough yeah. to move on with my life that's not respectful i and agree i i like that her stories tread the same ground to a certain degree because it makes you realize there are subtle differences between people who live in the same type of town and come from the same type of socio economic background and have the same kind of accent. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) in this Sarah Gordon book, Flannery O'Connor and the obedient imagination, there is, I think that's the title. uh, There is a Flannery O'Connor computer. Simply follow the lines to compose your own Flannery O'Connor masterpiece. This is from a guy named man Martin. It says a or an poor or disabled or racist or typical or ugly or religious or athletic sorry, are atheistic or stupid, Southern, man, woman, boy, or girl, and his or her family, grandfather, guardian, farmhands, ward, child, parent, go to another town, another state, a commencement, nowhere in particular, where he, she, or they encounter or encounters a Bible salesman, Negroes, Catholic girls, a foreigner, a priest, an atheist, a kook, a hot day, who or which, kills thee, seduces thee, troubles thee, is killed by thee, is seduced by thee, is troubled by thee, protagonist, central figure, old man or lady or tractor, with people looking on a gun, ease, dark skin, causing the main character to feel either dead, the end, odd, the end, unattractive but pious, the end, (laughs) minus one leg, the end, it's time to go home. The end. That To feel minus one leg? What a weird phrase. I know. Causing her to feel minus one leg. It's funny. It's like, it's like well, I'll do, I'll do you one better. Like, in this story, 
something happens to someone and they either die, learn a lesson, or don't learn a lesson. That is literature. That's every story. <laughs> and as you read that aloud, I thought to myself, oh, that's a wide variety now that I think about it. That's a wide variety of things that can yeah. happen to different types of people, especially if you're writing about, you know, one state, essentially, right. um, one region, and you have that many different types of people in it. Good on you. I mean, right. when I first saw that chart earlier today, I found it reductive and annoying, but then the more I'm thinking about it, it's actually kind of a wide variety of things that can happen to you. And, you know, when I think about, like, what's what's more impressive, to tell the same story ten ways or to tell different ten different stories? Well, if that one story is amazing, then ten different ways. I mean, I feel like Jesus tells parables all the time, and they almost all have the same, like, this is going to teach a lesson to the person that's questioning him about money or, I mean, you could do the same exact flow chart for Jesus' parables. they're about a cultural environment exactly. that would reach his listeners, but also be universal enough to reach people throughout yeah. history. Yeah. Farming. You know, that's just a universal thing. Farming, wedding. There's always going like... to be farming, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are certain things that are relatable. Inheriting money. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, that's not exactly what O'Connor's doing because she's not writing in these universal parabolic True. terms. What's cool about her is that she writes things that can function as parables, but they also feel so real and visual. They have at, these sharp at the details. Anagogical level. Yeah. Um, but, you know, people have said that she writes more in like the, um, the Middle Ages, like that, that the medieval uh, method of this is going to have three levels of meaning. And so mm-hmm. it's going to have a moral meaning. Like, you know, what do you learn from reading this? Like, what's, what's the moral of this story? It's going to have a theological meaning, and then it's going to have an anagogical meaning. And so uh, that idea of, like, the analogy or the allegory, like, what is this representing? You know, sometimes it's, it's like, uh, you know, a, a cardinal sin, you know, in the Catholic sense. Um, sometimes it's just you know, uh, um, a phenomenon of the culture. You know, I feel like Flannery O'Connor, for, for as, <laughs> as small town as she seems, she's actually engaging with the zeitgeist of the 50s and 60s way better than some other writers. And showing respect in a sh- negative way, I don't know, respect for the South in a way that very few people did by saying, hey, all these cultural trends... Um, they exist in the South, too. True. And they 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 even exist among people who aren't well-educated. Um, <laughs> yeah. The zeitgeist of her time did not just extend to the elites. True. And sadly, you know, we talk, you talk about the Christ-haunted South. Um, that's a phrase that gets used a lot in talking about Flannery O'Connor. Um, the South is more was more probably, I think still is more Christ-haunted. I mean, people feel as if they have to reckon with the idea of Christianity and whether they want to reject it or accept it mm-hmm. more in the South than they do in other regions of the country. But still, um, the the nihilism, the sense of just scientific materialism, you know, winning the day, um, 
the sense of capitalism mm-hmm. being what the force that really drives your life, all these different ways to order your life without Christianity are just as relevant to the small town South as they were to, you know, other regions of the country where she yeah. lived like Iowa or Manhattan. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, one of the great takeaways of, of her writing is it's universal because it's about the human heart and it's about particular human hearts that she, you know, chose to either reflect people that she knew or just make them up based on a composite of, you know, different people. And so, you know, when you think about like, oh, well, we're nothing like those people in the 50s, it's like, well, you know, that always comes out of a lack of knowledge of the complexity of the people of the past. And that's something we talked about at length in season one of Some Reading with mm-hmm. Deals. But this, the reductive view of yeah. people in the past. But uh, what's amazing about these stories is they're all set in the present for, for Flannery O'Connor's day. She doesn't have any stories that are set in the past. They reference the past, but they don't necessarily take place in the past. Um, and so I, that's one of the things I really like about her stories is I, I'm just so drawn to writing about the past. I mean... I. I'm trying, trying desperately to type out uh, the 120,000 words of my handwritten novel that I've worked on since uh, May of 2020. That was my COVID project. It took pretty much the entirety of the COVID pandemic. Um, but I did finish handwriting it about a, about two, about a month ago. But, um, but it's set in the 90s because it's like that's the time that I have... Uh, I feel like I, ha- I have more of a grip on it and more it's, it's, it's more crystallized in my mind. And I do find it harder. Like I've been trying to write these short stories about the, the modern day and I, in, in my mind, I'd like to believe there's some combination of Flannery O'Connor and David Foster Wallace. And, you know, I think that's accurate. And maybe a little bit of, you know, Adam Deal special sauce, but, um, but that's the thing is like, I, if someone was like, this is just these two things, I'd be like, thank you. Like, those are two of my favorite writers. Like, I've I've never laughed at writers more than Dave Foster Wallace or Flannery O'Connor. There are a couple moments of him in a way where I just, like, laugh hysterically. Um, like, say something pitiful, Robert Cohn. Um, <laughs> that just gets me every time. But, but you know... A lot of writers don't try to be this funny. And, and Flannery O'Connor, I mean, a lot of female writers really just don't, they don't see that as their purview, especially before our generation. Like, I feel like people in the, in the 21st century are much more humor-prone because they don't want to write about the serious things. Like, they, they, don't, they either feel like they're out of their depth when they're talking about faith, or they feel like they're out of their depth when they're talking about grief and these, these really intense things. Um, but that's something that, you know, I feel like Flannery O'Connor is funny because, A, it's funny in and of itself, but it's actually funnier because it's in the context of, like, here's a story about a, a, a boy that has polio or, and, 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 and has a, a deformed foot and has to wear a, you know, has to wear, wear a, a big shoe. And she makes that shoe, like, 
the funniest thing. I mean, he, he takes the, the tongue out of the shoe and puts it on the toe just to keep it together. Like, he want, he's, he's, like, bound and determined to, like, keep that shoe on his foot. And, and then here's this, like, perfect, new, glossy, shiny black shoe and he doesn't want anything to do with it and Shepard is like he didn't even try to he didn't even try on the shoe yet like he just is so earnest about that shoe and it's like the earnestness that he feels about everything gets hilarious when it gets put in that kind of grotesque humor of the like the uh, the um the instruments for the afflicted that's what that's what it calls the the shop uh where he buys the shoe and and it's like it's not, you know, it's not something to laugh at that people have, you know, club foots or whatever. But that's, I don't think Flannery O'Connor is laughing at people that have club foots. She's laughing at people that think they can fix people that have club foots. Feet, club feet. And, and, and rightfully so, because she's seeing that they're chasing after the wind. And she's saying, hey, what's it going to take for you to wake up? Your kid committing suicide? Because I'll do it to you. And it's like you would think she would have a little more mercy for her characters, but that's that's where she really brings the challenge to the reader. What is true mercy? Is it permissiveness or is it a strict deliverance of the truth? Well, maybe that's part of why she wanted to write in the present. I mean, you you started off that talking about how she was writing about the present day and not the past. Um, it's it is more confrontational to write about the present moment. It feels more directly an indictment of people if you want to have an indictment. And I don't. I mean, by the way, I don't think it's all indictment. I think it's just I trying to open eyes, not yes, indict yes. per se. But she, the humor might partly make it more palatable the the hard truths that she's delivering like yeah, that's, that's a good point. spoonful of sugar theory yeah. um but also she just seems to have been irrepressibly hilarious um yes. all her letters are so funny J- just her way with phrasing things is hysterical to me she was a, a cartoonist mm-hmm. earlier in her life and um so probably she couldn't help being funny even though she had a really serious purpose yeah. for her writing but but writing about the present is more aggressive and confrontational. True. Um, it also is difficult because you haven't had time to reflect on what it meant yet. And I think it's harder to be thought-provoking because it's, it's so much easier to be thought-provoking about the past because you can't, you know, these characters are dead. Like, what can I do? What You know, I don't know anyone like Quentin Compson because he died over 100 years ago. You know, it's like I can't really... Make make that sense of like how do I how do I deliver a message to someone like this? It's like well, I have to just translate that to modern day and then think who does that remind me of? And there's always that sense of oh maybe the world's changed since then and we don't have to pay attention to these hard truths from this. Not I me mean, read Dickens and you think well you know society is uh, certainly reformed since then so maybe you know these poor suffering children in this ruthless society he depicts. Maybe we're not ruthless like that anymore. I mean, we are ruthless in our own ways, but it's just easy to not let yourself think that way when you're, you're reading about the past. But if something is set in the modern day, it's just, it has a different resonance in terms of, it feels um, like it could make you question 
and mm-hmm. think about whether you could actually take some action and change something as a society if yeah. you're pointing out some deep idols of the present day. So uh, I, <laughs> I got very forlorn that I could not find this quote in her letters in The Habit of Being. And then I found it. We, all we had to do was pray about it. And, you know, I looked for like five more minutes and I found it. This is a, a letter to Roby McCauley, 18 of May, 1955. It says, I, I certainly am glad you like the stories because now I feel it's not bad that I like them so much. The truth is I like them better than anybody and I read them over and over and laugh and laugh, then get embarrassed when I remember I was the one who wrote them. Now, <laughs> if there's anybody that is amused by his own creative works, it is Adam Deal. I can um, attest to that. And I, I, I just, the, reading, reading Flannery say that about her own work just made me like her that much more because these artists that are like, oh, I've never listened to my album since I finished it. I've never watched the full cut of my yes. movie again. That that's just coming from that's that's not true humility. That's that's coming from a sense of like almost like in a way it's taking away the dignity of the work. It's saying like it's not worth any more of my time. Maybe it's self just self consciousness that becomes yeah. crippling. I mean, I, so C. S. Lewis says in Till We Have Faces that the narrator says that she was with book the way you're with child she just has to get this she's she's kind of germinating this book and she has to get it out Mm -hmm. and um he's he wrote elsewhere i think that he felt that way about his book sometimes too he just had a book it was just weighing heavily on him he had to get it out but (laughs) that analogy becomes disturbing if you think about artists who are you know bearing and then giving birth to this creative work and then abandoning it forever (laughs) neglecting it taking no joy in it ever again and I just think you know when you think about like God delights in this creation I mean you know he says it's good it's good and he creates people and he's like that's very good (laughs) and of course we all know there's people who do something themselves and then just stare at an adulation and think it's the best thing that's ever happening. They don't ever want to see anything except what they've made. I mean, that is way too far on the other end of the spectrum and it's just disturbing in its own right. And I think about, you know, why am I making this, you know, like music, for example? Well, I feel like I'm at the point now where I want to write songs just to, just to glorify God and to, to use the talent that he's given me so that, someone that hears my songs might be inspired to make their own songs. Like, I, I don't want people to hear my songs and be like, I could never do that. I give up. Like, I want people to hear my songs and be like, I love that song. I want to write a song. Like, like, that's how I was when I was young. You know, I mean, that's how I still am now. Like, if I hear a song that I'm like, oh, wow, that's, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that very often in the modern day, but uh, I was just marveling about uh, Driver's License by Olivia, Olivia Rodrigo, which I would not, say is an amazing song uh but it what is amazing about it is it's almost entirely vocal there i don't think there are any instrumental moments in the song like maybe for two seconds there's an instrumental without her singing so it was impressive to me to think 
wow, this, however long this song is, like three and a half minutes, is just all her voice. And, and one of the things that I saw on um, <laughs> what makes this song great episode, I think it's 107, Seal, Kiss from a Rose, um, Rick Beato is talking to Seal and, uh, on a video chat, and Seal is talking about how the voice of a singer is really the, the cornerstone of a song. And as I start to prepare for this songwriting appreciation class that I'm teaching in fall 2021 at Augusta University, which still has seven spaces left if anybody's listening <laughs> before registration, um, I think about that concept of like what does make songs great. And of course, that makes me also think what makes literature great or what makes, you know, um, a piece of visual art great. Um, and I think, you know, there's a subjective element to all of it. If you don't like it, it's very hard for anyone to convince you that it's great. But with Flannery O'Connor, I did not have to be convinced. Like, the first time I read, I think I read The Life You Say Might Be Your Own, I'm pretty sure in eighth grade. And I loved it. And I was like, this is great. But I didn't dive deeply into her, her fiction because... It was just one story, and I moved on. But then I read, I think Good Country People was the next story. And then I was like, ooh, I like this one too. And then I moved on. Then I read, I don't think we read every story in, in A Good Man's Hard to Find, but we definitely did Good Man's Hard to Find, Good Country People, The River. Um, when when did you do this? This what? was in this senior year of high school. Okay. Um, so we, we definitely did four or five stories in Dr. Batten's class. I cannot remember uh, any more of them. But, um, but just, you know, all that to say, every time I engaged with Funny O'Connor, I liked her more. And this is obviously not my first time to engage with her, but to, you know, this is the really, the time where I was like, okay, I'm really, I'm, I, I'm definitively, like, this is my favorite writer. I mean, she's just, I just am, I am vibing with her so much, and, and, and in large part because of this story collection. Like, I, I love the stories in Good Man's Hard to Find, but the stories in, in Everything That Rises Must Converge really challenged me in a different way. They are grotesque in a different way. They obviously have a lot of spiritual meaning and force, um... And I just think about Flannery getting such a kick out of writing them. Like, I'm so thankful that she wrote them because it brought her pleasure. Like, it wasn't just something that brought me and the other readers that like her pleasure. It was something that she delighted in making. And, and it comes yeah, through that, in reading. Yeah, the, exactly. Because the, the delightful moments, even in a story where something terrible is going to happen, you can just tell she, she took delight... In writing them, even when she was wrestling with them, they're just these yeah. moments in every story of hers I've ever read um, that are so either sometimes transcendently beautiful, but oftentimes just hysterical little details yeah. or um, phrasings. She has such an ear for dialogue, the yeah. way people talk that I love just walking through the world and hearing people say funny things in funny ways. And she has such an ear for yeah. that. Yeah. <sighs> The first short story collection to me it is indicative of her talents to do that, you know? Um, 
and I think the difference, you know, when I think about her being at the end of her life, you know, writing all these stories, you know, she, she's like eight years away from dying when she's writing Greenleaf. So she's got a lot more life to live from then on. And she does a lot of speaking engagements and she gets a novel, you know, another novel published. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I think, I think she, she lived the fullest life she could given the lupus and, and the, the level of treatment she could get for it. Um, but I think about this concept of these, these stories, especially the ending ones like Revelation and Parker's Back, um, I just think, you know, at some point, you just let the Holy Spirit write it, and you're the amanuensis, and, you know, you, you're, just, you're just scribbling down, you know, what's coming to you in inspiration, and, you know, for anyone that's, that's created that way, whether it's uh, visual art, or music, or literature, or poetry, or, or even, even, like, dance, you know, um, just... The, the the immediate display of life uh, in, in a creative moment. You know, sometimes that can be very beautiful. Sometimes that can be very fun. Sometimes that can be very dark. Like, I've gone through seasons of depression where, like, I'll play guitar while I'm just feeling really down. And some of the music that I'm playing is just, like, really just like pain soaked and it doesn't sound like death metal or anything, but it just sounds, it sounds, uh, very weighty and not like free and, you know, like, like fluffy. Um, but, but that, that allows me to get away from that feeling. And I feel like Flannery used her stories not to like bring pity to herself, but to just show her fitness was not compromised by lupus, uh, spiritually speaking. In fact, I would say it was enhanced by the lupus. Like, I don't think she could have ended her race on earth as faithful to God as she was if she had made it as a writer in New York City and been like, you know, a, a lifelong New Yorker that kind of, you know, was like, well, I grew up in the South, but I'm a you know, New Yorker. I mean, yeah, it would have been awesome to meet Flannery O'Connor, like, on Earth. Yes, I would have loved that, but I have so much more hope to get to interact with, you know, Flannery O'Connor and Dostoevsky and my grandfather that I never got to meet because he died before I was born. Like, the people that I know that were Christians that died before my time, like, I get to spend eternity with them, so... Yeah, one meeting with someone famous would be really interesting, but it wouldn't be a relationship. And that's, you know, it's like the relationships that I've been blessed with, whether it's Whitney or my family or obviously Josephine or my friends, uh, my colleagues, my students, you know, I want to enrich those. I, I want I want to bring 100% to those and not be like, well, I wish I had this. I wish I was best friends with, you know, this person um, because really if you let yourself, you can get the, you know, you, you can, you can get the, 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 the richness of life out of any relationship. If you both bring yourselves hundred percent to the table. Well, have we capped it? You think? I feel pretty good. Um, 
Yeah, this has been, you know, it's been very different talking about a short story collection because a novel lends itself to so many different elements, whereas, like, we really felt like we had to just cover everything we could about a, a short story in one episode, or in some cases, two short stories in an episode. Um, but I think what it helped us do was to see the unity of purpose of it all. Um, and that's, that's part of why I wanted to do it. It was like, I, I knew there was an inherent united purpose in Flannery's, uh, writing these stories because I knew that, you know, she's writing it with the understanding she's going to die of lupus because her dad died of lupus and in a similar age range. And so, so that sense of like, what would you do with your, your ending phase of life? And, you know, it's, it's very, um, very encouraging to us and very, very uh, exhorting to us to say, like, don't, you know, don't give up, don't give in, like, persevere and, and do something, do something for God's glory at the end of your life that you maybe couldn't have done at the prime of your life or, or when you were, you know, younger in your faith, you know, that sometimes God waits for the right time for your faith to be mature enough to make his purposes more fully known and more, more, more clear to people than you could have done, you know, when you thought it was convenient for you. Yeah. These stories remind me that submitting to God's authority instead of trying to assert my own superiority is the most freeing possible thing that Mm. I could ever do. So one thing that we talked about with the Faulkner uh, season was the cover. And I thought we would uh, cover, the, cover the cover before we conclude. This is, I, I'm looking at the, um, the FSG uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Giro um, edition. This, this is not the newest edition. This is the, um, I'm looking, I'm turning, uh, 1993 it looks like. Uh, but this is like, this cover series, we have a wise blood with the same artist and the uh, the collected stories that I bought from Borders in whatever year that was, probably freshman year of college. Um, it has the same artist. It's uh, Roxana Bikadorov. So Whitney, it, so it's it's like a light blue background with a dove with an arrow piercing it seemingly in its heart. What do you think of this cover for these stories? Okay, I'll start with, it's a bird, so it rises, everything that rises must converge, so that seems fitting. And then at at least one story, The Enduring Chill, um, prominently features the Holy Spirit as a bird. So, you know, I'm I'm thinking of that as representing the Holy Spirit. Yes. Um, Being pierced in that way, of course, it kind of connects the Holy Spirit with Christ. Yes. Um, It also makes me think about the ways in which God's grace pierces characters in these stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so all of that. What about you? So I was thinking about the idea of, like, who's shooting the arrow, right? Who is the dove, uh, is the dove, I mean, you know, we think about doves being innocent, um, doves being peaceful. And so it's like there's this kind of like uh, intersection of war and peace 
in this in this cover. Like there's, you know, destruction and peace. Um, and you know, I think of you know, it goes back to the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then the next one is blessed are those of you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for you shall be you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And it's like this is the next level of the beatitude after peacemaking is what will happen to the peacemakers. And Flannery O'Connor is trying to bring God's truth to earth, and she is, that's the stage of life she's in. She's, she's in the inherit the kingdom of heaven, not at the beginning stage of poor in spirit, but in the final stage, which is she's not persecuted necessarily by people, I think she's persecuted by her illness. And I mean, you know, Satan is the inventor of illness. And so this idea of the dove that's pierced in the heart by the arrow, you know, it's not a bullet. It's not, it's, it, it has this kind of timeless look to it. Like it's, it's something kind of ancient and not modern. And the idea of the dove, you know, think about the Holy Spirit coming down onto Jesus in the baptism you know, as a dove. And and this idea of, like, God is associated with doves and be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as snakes. And and to me, it's like the, the shrewdest snake is really more what Flannery O'Connor is. I don't really think... <laughs> her, her stories don't come across as innocent. They come yeah. across as shrewd. On the back cover, Thomas Merton, another Catholic writer, um, said that she shows man's fall and his dishonor with truth and craft. Mm. And um, I think that's right. She doesn't show man's innocence. Yeah. And so, but man isn't innocent, right? Man is fallen. Yeah. So, um, but this dove certainly does seem untroubled by the arrow, dignified, um, at peace, holding mm-hmm. its head high. Um, its arms seem outstretched. I mean, its wings seem outstretched, but it looks like a pose of Christ on the cross to me, to Ooh, an extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it doesn't feel as if there's going to be any long-lasting destruction done by this arrow, if you ask yeah, me. Yeah, it's like the arrow is just penetrating the feathers of the dove. So it's not like... Like, I would say it's a dove with an arrow, uh, like, on it, instead of, like, it's an arrow with a dove around, if that makes sense. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it hasn't pierced very far yet. Yeah, like, it's primarily a portrait of the dove. And if you think about the title, Everything That Rises Must Converge, being put next to this dove that's obviously rising, and it's being thwarted, and it's mm-hmm. rising by this arrow, but you get the sense it's going to triumph in the end, and I think that the temporary difficulties that O'Connor puts her characters through are for the ultimate purpose of, of rising. Yeah. You know, they're, they don't have to be permanent defeats that these characters go through when they go yeah. through these hardships. Once, well, you know, you think about some of the titles or some of the like plot lines, like, okay, Mrs. May in Greenleaf is penetrated in the heart by the bull's horn. So there's that, that overlap. And this is like, it's not making the, the dove lame in the sense of it's, it's crippling it, but it, it is wounding it. So it's like the wounded shall enter first. It's got that combina- you know, that connection to the lame shall enter first. And 
just that idea of revelation ends with that vision of people, you know, ascending to heaven. And so there's this kind of like, like when he said this rising, this, this, this ascension. Um, and so, you know, I think about this cover and it's funny, I, I want to talk about it because the, the cover of the wise blood edition, <laughs> that's a, that's a discussion off air. Uh, but, uh, that cover is so weird looking. It's it's hard to tell. Is it a is it a heart? Is it a tongue? It's got barbed wire around it. Is it a strawberry? It's <laughs> but strawberry. it's like it looks like a strawberry. <laughs> and so it's 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 I, so so to me, this artist has this uh, intuition. I don't even know what to call it. She has this ability to synthesize Flannery O'Connor's work, and she's not she's not a Christian. She's like some kind of like tarot reading, like out there, you know, witchcraft person. But it's it's like that's a good example of like God can even give a you know a revelation to someone that that didn't ask for it, yeah. and still use that person to to dignify something further, you know. And and I think that this cover in particular, like like the one of the more uh, more recent one looks like the cover of your um, collected stories. Can, can I say it real quick? Oh yeah, um, with the peacock. Yeah, so it 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 has birds rather than like the the complete stories has a peacock, but it's this same kind of watercolor mm. look to it, and it's very beautiful. It's got these great like G Biv side of the rainbow colors to it. Um, but that being said, I just like this. Everything that rises must converge dove because it it looks so simple and I think it's indicative of the simplicity of Flannery O'Connor's prose and yet it has this multi-layered metaphor just like her stories do and so uh, I do like it as a, as a cover uh, especially because it's got this like kind of tan uh, beige colored ba- uh, border and it's kind of it's kind of captured in the the underside of the dove's wings, and so the just the look of it it actually looks to me very light and airy, like it doesn't look like a heavy story like a set of stories, and yet when you read them, they're very heavy and they're very just just profound um and so it's like it's kind of the the book cover um that 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 kind of indicates you know what's coming so anyways that's that's it we're getting a call from our our babysitter our babysitter so we gotta gotta go back to josephine so anyways it's been a pleasure this summer uh summer reading with the deals season two we will come back to you next summer hopefully with the brothers karamazov we'll talk to you then thank you bye-bye